ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, Jill Lepore on the difference between American patriotism and nationalism. The argument raging in the United States these days over immigration policy is part of a broader debate Americans have been having almost since the country's founding. Should the United States serve as a safe haven for foreigners, or is it for Americans alone? Listeners of NPR's Morning Edition got a reminder last month of the Trump administration's position on this when the acting director of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, Ken Cuccinelli, described how he interpreted the iconic lines embossed on the Statue of Liberty. Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, are also part of the American ethos? Uh, They certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. Harvard University historian Jill Lepore tackles the immigration issue in a book published earlier this year titled This America, The Case for the Nation. The book traces the evolution of America's relationship with nationalism and makes the case for the enduring importance of American civic ideals. In addition to her academic post, Lepore is a staff writer at The New Yorker. She's our guest this week. Thank you for joining us. Sure. So I think what's interesting about your book is that you walk us through the way in which the nation, as it evolved, struggled with identifying who was a part of the nation and who was outside of the nation. I'd like you to just sort of walk us through how this concept evolved. Yeah, so it's important to remember that the United States was founded not as a nation, but as a union, as a federation, right? That really is the nature of the republic under the Articles of Confederation, which, of course, is what the Continental Congress adopts um, beginning in 1774 to kind of confederate a bunch of former colonies, now newly independent states, to form essentially a temporary military union for the sake of waging a war. Then the Constitution in 1787 does something different. And in between those two events, the Declaration of Independence establishes the more formal union, a a league, a covenant that's stronger than the Articles of Confederation, but still doesn't talk about this new union of states as a nation. To the degree that there is a kind of sense of Americanness that is cultivated by the forming of the league, the covenant, and the union, it is actually a set of shared ideas that are thought to be universal. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. These are universal ideas. Of course, they'll be echoed 
as the universalism of the French Revolution. And part of that is this really deep commitment to the idea of the United States as an asylum, you know, which is something that George Washington writes about, Thomas Paine writes about. It's a, it's a deep tradition. Uh, you can talk about it politically uh, and its specific political origins. It also has origins in a Christian morality that I think are important to think about. We think about being a refuge for the poor, offering a shelter to needy people. So it's complicated, of course, because the reality is, at the time the United States is founded, most peoples in the world would be excluded from citizenship and what is the United States based on their race or their wealth or their sex. So one of the reasons that this whole realm of ideas about the United States as a nation is uh, historically become unavailable to people on the left or even just slightly to the left of center is because it's so patently riddled with hypocrisy from the start. You cite extensively composite nation by Frederick Douglass, which comes out in 1869, which he talks about how the U.S. was founded on difference, which seems a fundamentally different take on how the United States is portrayed in that sort of Tea Party look at the history. I want to talk about that, but I'm going to back up for a minute to go to uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, right, when Lincoln and Douglas are vying for a Senate seat in Illinois. And it's a perfect example of this contest of ideas between the liberal vision of the nation and the illiberal vision of the nation. Because what Stephen Douglas says is, when I read the founding documents, I read that this country was founded by white men for white men and their posterity forever. And that's what I see when I read the Declaration of Independence. And Abraham Lincoln says in his, you know, rebuttal, what documents are you talking about? Like you can read, you know, we could ask anybody in the whole world to read these documents and nobody could find in them your position. Your position is an invention. And Lincoln loses that election, but of course, when he runs against Douglas in 1860 for the presidency, <laughs> he wins, and, and Lincoln wins the argument. That's what the Civil War is about, and the people who hold that position win the war. But what Douglas saw by 1869 was that the Confederacy, which takes the position that, of course, Stephen Douglas had taken, that the country was founded by white men for white men and their posterity forever, that's what the Confederacy's ideology was, that it, the Confederacy's in some danger of winning the peace. And Frederick Douglass, when he goes on the speaking tour in 1869, when the country is dealing with the 14th and 15th Amendments, we're addressing the question of immigration, birthright citizenship of the 14th Amendment, and voting rights in the 15th Amendment. What Frederick Douglass does is take Lincoln's argument, which had been Douglass's argument in the 1850s too, uh, and takes it a step further. And he says, it's not just that you can't find white men in their posterity forever in the founding documents. What you can find in the founding is the spirit of universalism and this embrace of difference and this institution of asylum. And we will, you know, Douglas sort of looks around and predicts like there will be two kinds of nations in the world going forward. There'll be nations that understood that strength can be found indifference. And there'll be nations that don't understand that, and they will always be weaker. And Douglas <laughs> turns out to be right, right? Like the failed states are the states that close their borders and define themselves in reference to antique and imagined nativities and racial decrees. And they can gain a lot of strength because those are totalitarian and authoritarian states generally, because they impose that set of ideas on, on a people. 
But strength will be, in fact, in liberal states. It's the liberal nation states that understand that it is the welcoming of other people and it is the celebration of what all peoples bring to a political community that makes the United States. This is Douglas's argument for American exceptionalism. And this is coming from a man who was born as human chattel uh, in 1818 and has, has to run away and become a fugitive from the law as a young man, has to leave the country as an exile because of the bounty placed on his head by his former owner. And this is his version of liberal nationalism that in spite of his own experience of the hypocrisy of the founding, his own physical torture at the hands of that hypocrisy, still sees and is able to see and becomes the most eloquent spokesperson for that vision of liberalism. I mean, the tragedy of, of thinking about Douglas, you know, in this parable-like way is, of course, the 14th and 15th Amendment do get ratified, but then they're not enforced because Reconstruction comes to an end and the regime of Jim Crow arises by the early 1880s and then a regime of immigration restrictions starts. So by the end of Frederick Douglass's life, these promises that people have given their lives for and fought for, uh, white and black, uh, the soldiers from the, from the Union who fought during the Civil War fought for this vision of the liberal nation, have been betrayed by the regime of Jim Crow. Yeah, I wanted to get us to this, in the 1880s, this race-based nationalism that leads to the rise of Jim Crow, racial segregation, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then ultimately, the eventually in 1915, the, the rebirth of the KKK and this idea of a quote-unquote true Americanism. So the 1880s is a real watershed, both in the United States and in Europe, for a turn toward you know what we would call ethnic or race-based nationalism. There's a huge economic transformation because of the Industrial Revolution. There are new forms of mass communication, accelerating forms of communications technologies, new forms of mass transportation in the railroad. And when people and goods and ideas move across borders more quickly and more easily than they did just a few years before, people tend to get anxious about borders. And so there is a great deal of new concern in the United States and in Europe about immigration and about racial hierarchies within nations. And in the United States, that takes the form of the first federal law restricting immigration. The borders were open until 1881 in the Chinese Exclusion Act. And the first Jim Crow laws, which you know mandate racial segregation throughout the former slave South. And that regime goes unchallenged by Northern progressives. This is the great failure of the progressive movement. There's plenty of opposition to that regime. That opposition comes from, you know, like someone like it, the anti-lynching crusader Ida B. Wells. Uh, it comes from many quarters, but it doesn't come from progressives. And it is largely embraced by populists, by left-wing populists who are economic populists, tend to be from the West and the Midwest. Um, so it kind of goes unchecked all the way to the point where you get to the election of Woodrow Wilson, a Southerner, a segregationist, a huge transformation politically in the United States. When, when, when Wilson is elected, he segregates the civil service, he segregates Washington, D.C. And 1915, of course, then, you know, marks the birth of the nation, the D.W. Griffith film. It's a sort of fantasy about the great KKK, and the KKK is reborn on the back of that, aligns itself to a considerable degree with the Democratic Party, which is white Southerners still at that point. Blacks are wholly disenfranchised. So you get by 1924, the next big turn. And, and really, I think 
the high point of a race-based nationalism in the United States, which is the National Origins Act of 1924. And these are the quota laws that restrict immigration significantly. Yeah, so restricts immigration from Europe for the first time. Uh, so the Chinese Exclusion Act had restricted immigration from China, and there had been other somewhat similar measures. But the 1924 Immigration Act establishes quotas, and they follow a regime of the scheme of eugenics. So the distinction is made then, not who can stand on their own two feet, but who has blonde hair and blue eyes and who has darker skin and darker hair and darker eyes. So it's basically a Northern European versus a Southern European distinction. So if you're Hungarian or Italian, Jewish, anywhere from the South of Europe, it's almost impossible to get in after 1924. My father, who's the first person in my family born in the United States, his parents had just gotten in from Italy, and they his middle name was Amerigo, because it was sort of a celebration of that you could start a new life, but he was born just months after that act was passed. You couldn't start that life after that. Right, and I in my family, I mean, Jews from Central and Eastern Europe, that ends up affecting them about 15 years later. It becomes a, a major problem and divides the family and destroys part of it. Right. And it's it's those restrictions that that's that's why it's very difficult for Jews to leave Europe and enter the United States during the Nazi regime. Right. Because of those restrictions that are put in place in 1924. How did they go about actually determining who they were going to exclude? How did that come about exactly? Yeah, it's crazy to read about because it goes under the veneer of science and it's obviously kooky. Uh, So what happens is. There are a series of eugenicist treatises that are written at the time that attempt to establish a biological difference between Northern Europeans and Southern Europeans. This is the same set of uh, eugenicist ideas that are influencing Hitler, right? It's the Aryan race that is the North. Uh, There's an insistence that Northern Europeans are more intelligent and uh, more industrious, and Southern Europeans are stupid and lazy. And there's a great panic. I mean, that's not unlike the replacement ideology that people talk about now, the kind of crazy right, white nationalist replacement fear that whites are being replaced. In the 19-teens and 20s, the fear was that the good whites were being replaced by the darker whites who are, you know, swarthy, right? Uh, like me, because I'm Italian. <laughs> so who's white question is what's being worked out here. And so Congress, they commission a report on the racial and national characteristics of the American people. And they set up these new categories and they tried to figure out what portion of the American, current American population are the good kind of whites and what are the less good kind of whites and then what are the people who aren't white and what categories should we use to refer to them. And then they figure out what portion of the population is already Jewish, Italian, and Hungarian, which are the people that they don't want. Uh, who are the people that have been coming since 1890 when there's a big spike in immigration to the United States. And then they say, well, we'll take no more than that proportion into the population. So it's a numbers game, but the numbers game is all about these new fictions of of a kind of very new racial hierarchy. You know, so when people talk now about, well, I don't know what box to check on the census because I'm a lot of different things. The boxes were designed largely in the years between 1915 and 1924. We'll be right back. 
Staying informed has never been more important, yet information is coming at us faster than ever. So how do you make sense of it all? Start here. Hey, I'm Brad Milkey from ABC News, and every weekday we will break down the latest headlines in just 20 minutes. Straightforward reporting, dynamic interviews, and analysis from experts you can trust. Always credible, always solid. Start here from ABC News. 20 minutes every weekday on your smart speaker or your favorite podcast app. FDR and the Dawes Act, which had prevented uh, Native Americans from becoming citizens unless they gave up their land in the 19th century, um, and he promotes the four freedoms, but then he also interns 100,000 Japanese during the war. And the action is upheld by the Supreme Court saying that it's a time of crisis. What happens after the war? Where do we go from there? One of the things that happens after the war is that American intellectuals try to begin to reckon with what caused the war in the first place. And what they see is the conflation of race and nationality, right? So there's a fair amount of scholarship in the 19... late That begins really in 1948, but all through the 1950s on the history of nativism in the United States. There's a kind of new awareness. I think it's, what is it, 1958 that John F. Kennedy publishes that book, A Nation of Immigrants, which is basically a distillation of all this scholarship, which argues for and attempts to fortify uh, the idea of the American nation with its celebration of immigration. JFK's Nation of Immigrants is basically a revision of Frederick Douglass's composite nation, right? It says, here's the thing. This is a country that is strong because we at least have always had the promise that everybody belongs here. We have failed to realize this promise, and that is our flaw, and that is our sin, and we can fix that. We can fix that with civil rights reform. We can fix that with better immigration laws, and we will fix that, and that is the promise of mid-century liberalism. That's what leads to... Uh, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Immigration Act in 1964 and 1965, which are aimed to, on the anniversary of the 14th and 15th Amendment, to realize the promise of those constitutional amendments through congressional action. But it's birthed in the 1950s through an incredibly violent period of bombings, of, um, of incredible violence against individuals and against groups. Absolutely. I mean, because, of course, 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, there's already been a huge amount of uh, terrorism committed against African-American churches uh, and meeting groups, the kind of petty vigilantism of Jim Crow itself. But in the immediate aftermath of Brown v. Board, these white citizens leagues are are born all over the country, not just in the Jim Crow South, because now, of course, African-Americans through the Great Migration are, are living all over the country. So kind of just to circle back to where we began with thinking about how is it possible in 2019 to say that, you know, to try to rewrite Emma Lazarus's invocation of the Statue of Liberty. It's because it's always been possible to do that. There's always been this battle between these two visions. But for most of American history, the race-based nationalism argument has been the weaker, it's the weaker argument as a matter of just the quality of the ideas. Uh, it rests on really crappy history. Um, and it has also largely been politically weaker. No, I mean, we've seen it recycled again and again into ever more um, vociferous and aggressive terms. I mean, if you look at Charleston and the chance of blood and soil and uh, you will not replace us or Jews will not replace us, it seems like that race-based nationalism has its extremely violent flare-ups again and again, and we're seeing it again currently. 
Yeah. I think what's a little bit different to me about this moment is who on the left is arguing against it by celebrating the idealism of the nation's founding principles. That's what's tricky. Um, there are people who, of course, it is condemned, it is derided, it is uh, greeted with contempt, it is tweeted about endlessly, it is the subject of statements of piety. Is it being countered with a vision of the nation as the defender of rights for all citizens and a spirit of invocation of the nation as a political community? Or is it being argued against as a matter of contempt for the people who hold those views? What's very appealing about the construction of your book is that you, the in the aggregate, we're a country that has started with an idea that we are a place of asylum, that we're a place of refuge, that this idea of a composite nation is actually something that has both made our national identity and it has made us stand out among other nations. That in and of itself seems to also be an ideal to which we have constantly tried to strive and that a certain kind of inclusive liberal democracy was the obvious default that everyone wanted. What I think is particularly surprising about the era is that it doesn't quite seem as though that's what everyone wants. So a few years ago, I decided I was asked to write a history of the United States. And uh, when I was planning it, I thought, well, when, when should my book end? You could write the history of the United States that would end with the final scene being the inauguration of, of Barack Obama. And the same book can end with the election of Donald Trump because it is the same country. It feels like a different country, and I, I agree. It feels different every day, every morning. I wake up feeling fundamentally different than I felt in 2009. But it is the same past that creates those two futures. I guess the thing is that many people on the left and the center, I would say, are sort of reeling from the amount uh, and the number of ways in which this narrative has been reinvoked from, you know, a rally where a sitting congresswoman is the chant to center back, which to me goes back to this question of who is an acceptable immigrant, who is an acceptable part of the society, that to reinvoke that, especially towards someone who's a public servant, um, seems to speak to some of the darker moments of American history. Oh, it does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and there's a real challenge to, therefore, I think, not submitting to despair, right? Especially if you were taken by surprise, which is a consequence of not studying the past. But I spend a lot of time thinking about Frederick Douglass. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about the last speech he gave in 1894, just a couple months before he died, died in 1895. He's an old man. Um, not doing very well, pretty frail. He's living in Washington, D.C., and he's asked to go give a speech in Manassas, Virginia, at a school for black children. Okay, so think about 1894. This is the worst. It's just before Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, which is going to give a legal imprimatur to the regime of Jim Crow. Uh, but there's Jim Crow throughout the South, all of the gains for equal rights that had been fought for uh, by abolitionists, by women struggling for the vote, which had been a huge part of the latter part of Douglass's life, 
equal rights, economic opportunity, educational opportunity, all these battles have effectively been lost and seem hopeless. Hasn't Douglas given up hope? And he goes to these kids at the school and he gives a speech about the importance of political hope. Um, and I just feel, <laughs> I, you know, people kind of pull out their hair about it's just the next thing that happened is I can't take it anymore. I'm so exhausted. All right, I'm sorry, but this is a hard moment in American history. There have been harder moments, and there have been braver people who have fought and gotten out of bed every day and fought the right fight. Do you have a sense of optimism about the future? Most of my pessimism has to do not with human nature or with the kind of current political climate. Mostly it has to do with technologies of communication and how wholly they impair the possibility for genuine political community and a democracy. So I figure if if there can be solutions to these technological problems, uh, and there, there certainly are solutions, then I am pretty optimistic. And I do think, for instance, in the way that the United States became after the Second World War, you know, the kind of undisputed leader of a modern liberal world order and a kind of beacon for liberalism, especially as the nation finally confronted civil rights, I think the United States, you know, with new leadership in Congress and across the country in governors' uh, offices and in state houses, could just because of the technological ingenuity and capacity, production capacity, become a kind of beacon for confronting global climate crisis problems. And that that could be a new kind of 21st century liberalism and a new role for the United States given its resources. I, that's not going to happen tomorrow, but I think elections can go a certain way. You know, the Berlin Wall did fall on one day. <laughs> like, the, I think there's, a, that's where my optimism, I think there's a, there's a change uh, on that question. And I think there's a lot of idealism in the country. There's a huge, really infinite capacity technologically uh, and in terms of economic production and a desire to, uh, to live up to our ideals that I think is truly promising. That was Jill Lepore, Harvard historian and staff writer at The New Yorker. First Person is produced by me, Sarah Wildman, along with help from Benjamin Soloway. Our editor is Rob Sachs, and our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be back next Friday. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. (laughs) And Seth Rogen. (laughs) So if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Faris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.